0: We return in our study to the Gospel of John, coming to John chapter five. John chapter five, and giving our consideration to the first fifteen verses tonight. I'd like to read through verse eighteen. Then we'll focus on the first fifteen verses of John chapter five. John five at verse one. The God breathes scriptures. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, that whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, "Arise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working Therefore, the Jews sought all the more more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Should we bow to ask for the Lord's blessing? Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word and for the revelation of the Savior you yourself have provided for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who helps us in the progression of life to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We pray there be growth here tonight. We pray, Lord, for your growth of your people in Romania under the ministry of Reverend Corsia and in Turkey under the ministry of Reverend Koskin. We pray, Lord, that you bless your word throughout all of this world. And, Father, we also pray for the growth of your word in the hearts of your children, not just in an upcoming education season, but in a new school year. We pray, Lord, that you'll grant all of our children a God-centered education, that they might see every subject matter, in submission to the Lord over all, our Lord Jesus Christ. So may we tonight, throughout this week, next week, and all the year, grow together in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Hear us, Father, and help us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, John 5 brings us to a new point in the book of John here. There's a kind of a shift, a new element comes into play, and that new element is the radical resistance that that Jesus will now encounter, which will continue all the way to the cross. John 4, 1 had hinted at it, that Jesus, remember, had left Judea and went up to Galilee in the north because the Pharisees were hearing about all these people being baptized by Jesus, by his disciples. And Jesus had gone up to Galilee, and after some time now, he comes back down to Jerusalem for a particular festival. We don't know which one. But what happens here is that Christ provokes hostility, intense hostility. And what is it that, that creates this outrage against Jesus? It's the revelation of himself. It's, it's his revelation that he is the Son of God. Remember, uh, John tells us towards the end of the gospel why he's written on these uh, words, why he's recorded these miracles, and he says that these are written that you may believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So on the one hand, these signs and wonders that John records are written that we may believe and have life, but these same works and words of Jesus provoke hostility among those who want to hate him. So John 5 and John 6 are organized similarly. Both chapters begin with a miracle, they provoke a reaction from the Jews or the leaders, and then they result in Jesus giving a long speech or discourse. And so next time we look at that long speech or discourse in John 5, and then a similar working out in John chapter 6. Well, tonight Christ reveals himself as the Son of God who has come to make sinners well, to make sinners well. And the story obviously proceeds in sort of three parts, Jesus and this Lame man whom he heals, and then the layman man speaking to the Pharisees, and then Jesus returning to the lay man. So, the first thing Christ does here is he shows that he has the power and the compassion to heal. We read about Christ coming to Jerusalem, about a certain sheep gate and a pool near there called Bethesda or Bethzana. And uh, uh, there's some porches there, a portico where we're under this roof lay. A multitude of sick people, lame people, blind people, paralyzed people. It's a pool that has been uncovered, and it's a place where Jesus had come. Now, there's something unique. Maybe you caught it if you're not reading the New King James Version with us tonight that the second part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is lacking in most English translations. This about the water being stirred up by an angel. That's a result of the fact that some manuscripts in the Greek do not have those words. And so some argue that it wasn't some supernatural stirring of this water that would heal people, but it was maybe a, a mineral spring an artesian well or something that fed it and caused it to bubble at times and so forth. And some would argue that, that what the lame man believes about needing to step into the water, John is not saying that's the way it was. He's just reflecting this is what people believed at that time. They, they had this kind of notion. Well, a few things to be said. Number one, whenever we encounter differences in Greek manuscripts, we should remember that is an amazing thing, a wonderful thing, that the vast majority of the manuscripts agree most all the time. God has preserved His word wonderfully. We don't have any of the original manuscripts where John wrote or Paul wrote. We have copies of the originals, and yet it's an amazing thing that God has so preserved them that as scribes, uh, they didn't have copy machines, but as scribes recorded these and wrote more manuscripts that they, as we have them today, have such agreement. And where there are differences... They're small, and there's no point of Christian doctrine that's in dispute. More specific to our text, we can note that already the church father, Tertullian, who lived about 145 AD to 220 AD, that he was already aware of manuscripts that spoke of the angel. Tertullian wrote, an angel by his intervention was wont to stir the pool at Baseda. They who were complaining of ill health used to watch for him for whoever was the first to descend into these waters after his washing ceased to complain. Thirdly, we have to confess that even whether the manuscripts have it or not, God is certainly powerful to do by an angel what he desires. One commentator, Reformed commentator, who who doesn't think verse 3 and 4 belong to the original Nevertheless, writes, on the other hand, it is certainly true that the possibility of supernatural angelic activity must not be ruled out. In the days of our Lord's earthly ministry, angels come into prominence again and again, and unusual powers and energies play an important role. could well be the fact that God was keeping hope alive in Israel by occasional healings, leading the people to wait for the Messiah who had come to set all things right. And finally... We could note this, that however one regards sets of Greek manuscripts, which ones are the more ancient or the more reliable and all of that. Regarding our text tonight, one thing is very clear, that the emphasis of the text is not on the pool of water, not on an angel that stirs the water, but it's upon Jesus, upon Jesus who has the power to heal and as we look at Jesus, we notice he comes to one man in particular, and amidst all those sick people lying there, Jesus chooses one man, a man who's been in misery for 38 years. And Jesus knows he's been in that state for a long time, and Jesus comes to him, and he draws the man's attention to him by asking the man one simple question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to get better? It seems like a ridiculous question. A sick man, he's waiting at the pool. But it's actually quite a probing question, isn't it? Do you want to be made well? As you get older, you realize that not everyone wants to be made well, right? There's many drug addicts, some perhaps on our streets in Salem, who, when offered treatment, might refuse it. They're not ready. They're not wanting to be made well, perhaps. There's people who have different kinds of issues, but they're not wanting it fixed. There's people who have marital issues, but they're not interested in the route it would take for that to be fixed. Sometimes deformities in life people get used to, and they love their deformity more than the alternative, or they don't want the responsibility of things being set straight. We understand that. Maybe this man has gotten used to his lifestyle, used to these people he lies here with, used to being a beggar and living from handouts. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to enter into society as a productive member, as one who has to take responsibility now and different things? But Christ's question here, whatever the state of this man's heart, is Christ's question here is doing two things. First of all, he's making the man profess what he perhaps hasn't thought about for a while, that he's utterly helpless and utterly powerless to affect to any change in his life. Do you want to be made well? And the man has to confess, I can't get to the water. I can't be healed. But Christ's words, do you want to be made well? are also drawing the man's attention to himself with the hope, the promise that perhaps this man can help me. Now the man responds and says he has no one to put him in the water. When the water's stirred, no one to get him down there. Apparently the law of the portico was every man for himself. Wasn't a lot of love lost. And Christ and yet is inviting the man to look to him and to see Christ's interest and Christ's sympathy. And Maybe the man's beginning as Christ speaks to get hope. Maybe this man will stay with me and put me into the water. But then something far greater happens. Christ commands him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man is cured. He's cured, takes up his bed and walks. And so his total inability, I have no one, I can do nothing, is met with a command to do what he couldn't do, get up and walk. And in that, Christ heals him. Christ is revealing himself here, isn't he, as the, as the eternal son of God. That, that the very power of heaven now is, is breaking into a broken world where, where we are all by nature helpless, lame, paralyzed, crippled, and we can't affect change. We can't heal ourselves. And here comes the visitor from heaven, the Son of God, with glory and power. And He heals this man, not gradually over time, but instantly and manifests himself as the Savior from heaven. And so we're being confronted here with a God who can do all things. Remember in Genesis 18, when the visitors come to Abraham's tent and Sarah's in the tent doorway and, and the angels proclaim or well, the Lord proclaims that by this time next year, she's going to have a baby. And, and the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh in her heart saying, shall I have a, a, a child in my old age? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what God says. That's what Christ said. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or the disciples, when, when Jesus spoke of the rich. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to be saved. And who then can be saved? And Jesus proclaimed, with man it's impossible that all things are possible with God. And this is the revelation we have here. A Savior who does the impossible, the Savior who saves. And so as we broken people in a broken creation bump up against the realities that we can't heal ourselves, we can't fix our lives, Christ is saying, here I am. I'm the one who makes well. But then in the second part of the story here, Christ encounters resistance. He provokes hostility, even now in his absence. He told the man to take up his bed and walk, and he did this on the Sabbath. The Jews, verse 10, therefore said to this man who was cured, it's the Sabbath, not lawful for you to carry your bed. And the man answers, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. The Jews take issue with Jesus here. Remember, the Pharisees had added to God's law their litany of restrictions, particularly regarding the Sabbath. And so they had all kinds of details. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say you're forbidden to carry a mat. Jeremiah 17 and others talk about not carrying a burden on the Sabbath presumably a burden in terms of you doing your daily work or bringing something into Jerusalem to sell it. But the Jews had failed to understand that the Jewish Sabbath was a pointer to the rest that God would bring them in the Messiah. They seemed to believe instead that they could attain rest by their own works. The man deflects responsibility, doesn't he? It's not law for you to carry your bed. He says, well, the one who cured me, he said, take up your bed and walk. And do you notice what is happening here? Jesus had commanded the man to take up his bed and walk. And why did Jesus do that? Was Christ so worried about mats lying around in the portico? This place is a mess. Get it picked up. You need know, to you get your mats stowed. Pick up that bed. Put it away. Well, of course not. But Christ was commanding him to carry his bed as a demonstration of his healing. That the mat, the bed that carried the helpless man, is now carried by the man who was helpless and now who walks. And so it's a sign of Christ's victory over suffering and sickness and death. The glory of this kingdom, of this power of heaven, is being revealed. The man who lie there helpless on the mat is now carrying the mat. And Jesus did this on the Sabbath. He didn't regard the Sabbath as a day unfit for doing good, did he? In fact, I was reading an article about the Sabbath this week. And the writer suggested that the seventh day was one favored by Jesus for his work. He writes, not only does Jesus choose it for preaching in the synagogue, the Sabbath, but he seems to prefer it to the other days for working his miracles. I didn't go through and check out all the days of his miracles to see if that was true. But it is remarkable, isn't it, how many things Christ does on the Sabbath day. Christ says in what follows that he's been working after the pattern of his father. His father's been working. He's been working. He reveals that the power of heaven is breaking into the passing world. The power of the world to come is already now present here. In the midst of this brokenness, and that Christ, therefore, is coming to bring the true rest, the true Sabbath that God has promised his people. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, He is the Messiah. But notice what happens here as the man is stopped by the Jews. When he makes clear, look, I was lame, I'm that lame guy, and I've been healed, and the one who healed me said to carry the bed. What do you expect would be the next question from, from the Jews? Why didn't they say, you are the one who is lame? You've been healed? Who healed you? It's not what they ask, is it? It's not what they ask. They asked the man, who is the man who said you take up your bed and walk? But you see, then at this point, the same question Jesus asked the layman could be asked of the Jews, do you want to be made well? Here's a nation that was supposed to be watching for the coming of the Messiah. How can you recognize the Messiah when he comes? Well, you remember John who baptized Jesus and proclaimed he was the Messiah, then later on got a little worried that maybe he wasn't the Mosaic, because John's in prison, and if I'm in prison, then what's going on here? And remember what Jesus told the disciples of John, who came from John, asking, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, and the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35 then. Behold your God, your God will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And the lame shall leap like a deer. So... If you recognize the Messiah, when you begin to see the works of a messianic kingdom, healings taking place, and a man stands before you and says, I've been healed. And you're supposed to be on your tiptoes watching for signs the Messiah is coming. And your response to his healing is, who told you to carry the mat on the Sabbath? Then there's a problem, isn't there? It's called legalism. God had created a world in which the Sabbath was woven into creation, the fabric of creation. But that rest, we ruined. And then as God restored Sabbath, he, under Moses, he added things to that Sabbath to make it in a special way, a a sign, a symbol of the coming of Christ, Right? He instituted other Sabbaths, and all these were to direct God's people to long for and to look for the coming of the Redeemer. They were pointers to the Messiah who now comes. But if when the Messiah appears and the clear work of the Messiah is present, and you're more interested in your man-made rules, then the question, do you want to be made well, has to be asked of you, doesn't it? Because what the Jews are suggesting is that we don't need to be made well. We've got things under control. We've got a religion worked out. We've got a whole bunch of restrictions, and we are keeping these, and that's the way of our lives and the way we're being saved. Have you ever responded to the gospel that way? I don't need what Christ is offering because I've I've got the way of my self righteousness all worked out. And we push away grace maybe because we're more comfortable with the system of our own works righteousness. Or maybe it's evidenced in the life of the person who always has to be right. The husband who can never say to his wife, I'm sorry. Because his confidence is, I'm right, and therefore I'm good, and therefore I'm acceptable to God. So he can't confess his sin in prayer before God. He can't confess sin to his wife or his children. He lives by his own standard of self-righteousness. Or maybe it's evidenced in the life of the person who can't rejoice with a forgiven sinner. With somebody who is unbiblically divorced, but... Has repented and been forgiven, or someone who is living a sexually moral life but has repented and been forgiven. Instead of rejoicing, a person's been healed. All they can do is say, "Not, not, not," because their hope is, "I haven't done those things, and therefore I'm right with God." Do you see? Do you want to be made well? Do you want the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Jews are quite satisfied with their lives. Remember the parable of the prodigal? That in mercy he's brought home and his father wraps his arms around him and embraces the son who was lost and has returned. And the older son can't rejoice, can he? Oh, no. Because the older son is Perfect. The older son has it all together. All these years I've served you, Father. Do you want to be made well? Or are you already so perfect? So Christ is provoking the hostility of self-righteousness. But finally, in this episode, it moves back to Christ and the cured man where Christ reveals himself as the one who would command us to live by his healing grace. In verse 14, well, let me back up. When they ask him who is the one who said to take up your bed and walk, the, the man did not know who it was, we read in verse 13. He doesn't know Jesus. Somebody healed him, the guy disappeared. But now he's about to meet Jesus. And how will he meet Jesus? Verse 14 Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus began with his outward malady, didn't he? He began with his his crippledness, his lameness, his paralysis. But now Jesus points to the internal, doesn't he? To the man's sin. Man's been healed in the body, but... It's not been a spiritual change. Now, some people in reading that verse 14, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. They assume that the man must have 38 years ago did some sin that brought upon him this this judgment of sickness. And now Christ is saying, don't do it again or you're going to get something worse next time. I don't think that's the case. Jesus uses the present tense and we could translate it. Do not continue in sin. Suggesting that Jesus isn't referring to a specific sin the man committed that, that caused some sickness. But that he's referring to the man's present condition. He's living in sin. He's unreconciled to God. He's living for himself. He, he has not turned to the Lord. And so Christ is warning him. If you go through life now with this healthy body, but your heart is still in rebellion against God, you will get something worse. You'd be condemned eternally. And so the question returns really to the man. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made really well? All the healings of Jesus, all his miracles are, well, they're never to be thought of as somehow separated from from the realm of forgiveness, from the realm of reconciliation to God. All of his miracles, all of Christ's works are of one piece. He came to reconcile the people to God. His, his, his works that he does demonstrate that, that God is reaching down to sinners. That, that God is, is invading this world. He's interrupting our broken lives. He's coming into our chaos of sin to rescue and to save. Not just our bodies, but our entire lives that are estranged from God. And now Jesus is warning this man when he says sin no more. He's warning this man not to be content with his outward healing, and to miss out on the kingdom of forgiveness and the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of knowing God. The man has to, become, has to become conscious of his far deeper need. His greatest problem in life was not that he couldn't walk. His greatest problem was that he was under the wrath of God, as everyone is until they're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And what a merciful Savior that unlike some who would just hand out food to the hungry and money to the poor and leave them on the road to hell, Christ preaches the gospel. Sin no more. He presses the man. He opens eyes. That's what he does for us, opens our eyes to the greater healing we need. And so the question, do you want to be made well, can also be asked by a command. Stop sinning. That also provokes the question, what are you after? What, what is your deepest longing? What is your deepest desire? Christ brings those out into the open, doesn't he? What, what are you after? When I command you, stop sinning, and you say, well, no, I prefer my sin. Well, then you're, you're revealing, aren't you, the state of your life. You don't want to be made well. Could it be even tonight that for somebody listening. That you've never come to know forgiveness of God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. That you are a slave to sin. And you're in the bondage of the evil one. And Christ is asking you even tonight. What is your desire of your heart? What is your longing? Do you want to be made well? Look at the Savior before you in all of his love and mercy. He calls you to be made well. In fact, Christ alone can give us the desire to want to be made well. So we cry out to him, Lord, save me even from my wrong desires. I don't want to be made well. Or was it Augustine who said, make me chaste, but not yet. Oh, Lord, give me the desire to want to be set free. Give me the desire to want to be made well. Because the only alternative to knowing the healing power of Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners to God, the only alternative is something worse, much worse, than the eternal wrath of God. How did the man respond? Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Commentators are divided. Is he naive that he would go tell them about Jesus, or was he treacherous? Naive simplicity or treacherousness? I spent part of the week believing he was treacherous. Misled, perhaps, by a commentator. But you read nothing of his response to the stop sinning, except that he leaves. The next thing he's doing is telling them Jesus and... When he tells him Jesus, it results in hostility against Jesus. So it looks kind of bad. But then I started looking at the question and the answer. The Jews had asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And when this man comes back to the Jews, he doesn't say, Jesus is the man who said to me, take up my bed and walk. He says, Jesus. Jesus. Made me well. Well, I don't know if the Holy Spirit wants us to know exactly what happened to him, but perhaps it was the man saying at last, you know what? Now I've been made really well. He caused me to walk. And now he's led me to confess my sin. Jesus has made me Well. Maybe still naive, not recognizing what this would do to Jesus and the hostility it would provoke. But perhaps quite sincere, Jesus has made me well. Whatever the case with this man, what is the case with your soul tonight? Can you say it, not just in terms of your job or your health, but in terms of your relationship to the living God before whom we all stand, can you say, it, Jesus has healed me. My sins are forgiven. I've been led from death to life. I've been washed clean. Jesus has done it. May that be the case. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for a Savior who probes our hearts. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, that too often we cling to our sin. We are not ready to part with it. We get quite used to the less than pleasing life that we live before your face. We we grow immune to to the things that still live in our hearts. We we get used to, oh Lord, so many sins, besetting sins that cling to us. And Father, we pray for a hunger to be made well, really well. We pray for the desire to put off sin and to put on Christ. We pray, Lord, for any one who Maybe has never, for the first time, sensed a desire to be right with you. Never felt that great pull of the Lord Jesus Christ and that summons to examine the heart. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your word would powerfully work. That it would lead us from death to life, to fall down upon Jesus, to cling to him, to cry out to him, save me. We thank you for your clear revelation that you have provided such a savior one of compassion, of truth, and of mighty power who can instantly cure us. God, glorify yourself in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.